Um, our scripture reading will be from Second Peter. We'll be finishing uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 12. That's page 984 in your pew Bibles, or follow along behind me. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to, came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You know, when I was halfway through Bible college, and I was about 19 years old, I had to take a year off uh, to work. And uh, that year I applied to a church in Kitchener. My family had been living in the States. We moved back to Kitchener. I started going to a church, and I applied to be the youth intern there because I was studying to be a youth pastor. And a few days later, the youth pastor, he called me up, and he called me to his office and offered me the job, and I applied, and, and then he sat me down afterwards and said, well, I've got good news for you, and I've got bad news for you. The good news for you is that you're hired. The bad news for you is that I've resigned. <laughs> and uh, he hadn't completely resigned. He was going back to school, in the, in the, so this was in the fall, in the, the new year, and uh, he was the youth and children's pastor, and he'd cut down to just children for the new year. And so he's, I'll be around for a few months, and then I'll be kind of here for a little bit of support. But he really wasn't. And I, at the age of 20, with zero experience, had no idea what I was doing, but kind of became the de facto youth pastor of this church for a few months. And I was way over my head. I, would, I muddled along. I did my best, but I had no clue what I was doing. At the end of the year, I had saved enough money to go back to school. And I started again, and I was in my third year, and at that point I was in a program to be a youth pastor, and all of my youth ministry courses were starting. I just take all these prerequisite courses of the philosophy and the strategy of youth ministry, and all of my classmates, and I mean all of them, hated these classes, just thought they were the most useless, boring, pointless classes they'd ever taken. Why are we doing this? Why do we need to know this? It's not helpful. I mean, these are guys, you know, 2021 who have grown up going to youth group, have been volunteering in youth group ever since they graduated high school, love hanging out with teenagers, love teaching the Bible, but have no idea that there's more to it than that, that you have to actually be able to run, run the youth ministry and have a reason why you do things. And I had been doing that for the past six months, being like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so these classes, I just drank them in. And I was like, guys, you guys are crazy. You don't know how much you need this stuff. They just couldn't see the value of these classes. They didn't know how much they needed it. That same principle is true for anyone who struggles to read the Bible. 
who struggles to love it. And let's be honest, many of us have a hard time, at least sometimes, getting excited about the Bible. I know there are some here, some of us who just don't read it at all. And many of us do, but we struggle to want to sometimes. Some of us, I know there are some here who drink it in every day, and it's like water in a dry and weary land for you. What's the difference? Well, the difference is just like my classmates and me, some of us know how badly we need the Bible and how valuable it is because of that. And some of us don't. And even if we know, it's, it's easy to forget. Well, our passage today in 2 Peter is all about remembering this truth. Remember, don't forget how precious these things are. Our big idea as we look at this passage that we're going to see is this, that the Bible was given to us by God so that we can hold on to knowing Jesus until he comes again. There's a lot, of, lot packed into that. Let me say that again. The Bible was given to us by God so that we can hold on to knowing Jesus until he comes again. That's the value of the Bible. That's why we need it. It's given to us by God so that we can Hold on to knowing Jesus. It's not going to come naturally to us. It's not going to be easy. But we can do it until he comes again because of the Bible. That's the purpose of the Bible. It's why we need it. Now maybe you hear that. You say, okay, that's information. I'm not convinced. So let me show you from our passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 21. We've talked about the past two weeks how this is a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a bunch of churches in what is now Turkey. Back then it would have been called Asia Minor. After two weeks, we've gotten to kind of the purpose statement of the letter. So he says in verse 12, So, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon be put aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. This is why he wrote this letter. Jesus has revealed to the Apostle Peter in some way, maybe through a vision or just his circumstances, that he is going to die soon. The story of church history is that the Apostle Peter was martyred for his faith. He was crucified Upside down, because he believed in Jesus and wouldn't stop preaching about him. And he knows that his body, this temporary dwelling, this, this tent, he's going to be taken away from him, he's going to die. And so he says, this is what I want to spend my last days doing. I need to remind you of these things, he says. Now, we need to understand what these things are, that's important, but let's talk about that in a little minute, in a minute. I, I want to to draw your attention to something else that maybe is a bit strange in this passage as well. Look at, look at again at that, at that verse 12. He says, so I will always remind you of these things. And in verse 15 he says, I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. Now listen, this isn't a text message. This isn't an email. This is a letter that was carried by somebody that Peter knew from Rome, where he was in prison most likely, to Turkey. There's no motors. There's no planes. All, everything is traveled by land or sailed by sea. This takes some time. 
Peter's about to die. It's coming soon for him. He's never probably going to talk to these people ever again. So what does he mean by saying future tense, I will always remind you of these things? Why does he say that? How is he going to keep on reminding them in the future if he dies soon? Well, the answer is through this letter. He says, I'm, I'm about to die soon, so I wrote you this letter, not so you could read it once and then discard it, but so that you can keep it and look at it periodically with your church and read it and preach from it and preserve it. This is going to be my ongoing reminder to you after I am gone of what you need to know. And that's exactly what happened. This letter, we're preaching it from it today. It's in our Bible because the Apostle Peter wasn't just some man who knew good things about Jesus. He was an apostle. He had the authority of Jesus behind him, as we saw a couple days ago. When he teaches about Jesus, his words are God's words, not his own. Peter knew that his letter belonged in the Bible. So knowing that he's writing God's word, he says, I want to remind you of these things. Now, what are these things? Well, I kind of just told you, these things were the message about Jesus. In fact, if you read from the beginning of the letter to this point, it's very clear that these things refers to what he's just said in the earlier part of the letter. These things that we spent the last two Sundays talking about. So just briefly, let me spell it out for you again. The first of these things is that we have the gift of salvation through knowing Jesus. That's the big theme throughout this whole letter. His greeting in verse 2 is a reminder of this. Back in verse 2 he says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now we talked about how that's sort of a standard greeting in a letter at the time that's been changed to put a whole bunch of theology in it. He says grace, which is a gift from God. The grace that we have is the peace with God that comes through knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ the Lord. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. That our creator loves us and that we have rebelled against him. and That we have sinned against him. And instead of punishing us for our sins which we deserved, God sent his son, Jesus, to become a human, one of us. To live perfectly as we should have but couldn't. He lived a righteous and moral life, and then he took our place by dying on the cross, right? He took our, our punishment for our sins. Not only did he take our punishment for us, but he gave us the blessing that we should have received, or that, that he should have received, excuse me. He exchanged places with us. He suffered through hell on the cross for us. He died for us, and then he rose back to life. He broke the power of sin and death forever for those who believe in Jesus. There's no more fear of those things. We're forgiven and welcomed to the family of God. That's the good news. That's the first thing. But it doesn't end there. The second thing that Peter wants to remind us of is that if we have faith in Jesus, then we have everything we need to say no to sin and live godly and righteous lives. Right? We saw that in verse 3 a few weeks ago. Verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're not just forgiven because of what he did, for, did on the cross, but you're transformed. And we know the full story of the gospel, that after he died and rose again, Jesus ascended into heaven, and from heaven, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to us, and to be in us and on us. 
The Holy Spirit is at work in all those who've put their faith in Christ to make us holy. God's at work in us to transform us. We aren't who we used to be before we knew Jesus, Christ. That's the whole point. That's the, the immersion part in baptism. We've died with Jesus. We've been raised to new life as well. Verse 4 says that Jesus has provided what we need so that, he says, so that you may participate in the divine nature, that is, you become like him, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You're not like who you used to be anymore. And so Peter continues, it's not only possible for us to live godly lives, to begin to live like Jesus did, but it's also important that we do. It's necessary for us. If we don't work hard to grow in holiness and become more like Jesus, then there's evidence that we don't truly know him. Verse 9 tells us that anyone who claims to be a Christian but isn't growing in virtue, it says, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Peter doesn't want only to remind us of our forgiveness through Jesus, but what the result in our lives must be and can be because of what Jesus has done. But that still isn't all. There's a third thing that Jesus wants to talk, or sorry, Peter wants to talk about, wants to remind us of. And that is that though Jesus returned to heaven after his death and resurrection, that one day he will return. This is going to be a really big theme later in the letter. It's been, it's been mentioned briefly so far. Verse 11 says that if we spend our lives working to grow in holiness because we know we've been saved by Jesus, if the evidence shows that we're really his, then in the end you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus came the first time humbly, as a servant, born into this world as a baby in a humble fashion. He grew up in a humble fashion and lived in a humble fashion to rescue us from our sins. He died on the cross for us. But when he comes the second time, he's not going to come humbly. He's going to come as a conquering king who will set up his eternal kingdom. And we who've been given the gift of salvation through knowing him and believing in him will be welcomed into that kingdom. But that everyone else who has not accepted this gift, has not, has not believed in him, has remained his enemy. The enemies that we all are by nature. And those who have not turned to Jesus will be punished for their sins. Now the reason that this is an important theme, this, this second coming of Jesus, the reason this is an important theme in the letter is because the church that Peter's, the church is, excuse me, that Peter is writing to are dealing with false teachers. These people who've come into the church claiming to be Christians, but they're living immoral lives. And they're denying this truth that Jesus is going to come back one day. If you look at chapter 3, verse 3, Peter says this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, by that he means the days that we're living in after Jesus' death and resurrection, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has been since the beginning of creation. They're saying, you don't have to live godly lives. He's not coming back to judge sin or do anything. He's not coming back. Things have continued forever. But Peter makes clear that Jesus will indeed return. And these teachers and all who are like them will be punished. We'll see more of that starting next week. 
So these are the things that Peter wants us to remind us and the original readers and all Christians of. In fact, this is the message of the entire Bible from start to finish. We're going to see that uh, more clearly in the next couple points that we're going to say today. This message is important for all of us. For any who are hearing today who are not Christians. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not come to know him in this way and understand that your sin deserves punishment, but that God loves you and he sent his son to die in your place and rise again so that you can be forgiven and transformed. If you know that you have not put your faith in him, or, or maybe, maybe you think you have put your faith in him. But you read that second part of the first chapter that we looked at last week and, and you see, well, my life does not point as evidence to that truth. Maybe I don't really know him. I don't really love him. There's no evidence that what I say I believe really has transformed me and made me love Jesus and want to live for him. If that's you, you need to turn to Jesus. You need to love him and believe in him and trust in him and what he did. Believe that you really do need forgiveness. We heard Mark in his testimony say he struggled with that, right? It's not clear to all of us that we're not good, that we need forgiveness. But it's true. Your sin needs to be forgiven, and Jesus has provided that forgiveness through his death and resurrection if you will put your trust in him. Know Jesus and receive this gift, please. For all of us who have done that, whether you've walked with Jesus for decades or, or maybe you believe in Jesus for the first time today. These things are a call to you and to me to hold on to him. To grow in your knowledge and love for him. To fight by the power of his Holy Spirit to live more like him. They're an encouragement that one day this fight, which is difficult, that it'll be over. And you'll be welcomed into his kingdom with joy. Hold on and don't give up. He will get you there. These are the things that Peter wants to remind us of. But the question that may come to mind is, how do I know that these things are trustworthy? How do I know that they really are worth holding on to and living by? These are good questions, and we need to consider why the Bible is trustworthy. We're going to spend the rest of this sermon looking into that based on this passage. As you likely know, the Bible is divided into two parts, right? The Old Testament before Jesus, the New Testament starts with Jesus' birth and goes from there. We're going to consider why each of them is trustworthy, starting with the New Testament. So our second point is that we can trust the New Testament, Right? Our first point was the Bible was given to us by God so that we can hold on to the knowledge of Jesus until he comes again. Our second point is that we can trust that what the New Testament says is worth holding on to. We can trust it. We can trust the New Testament. How do we know the story of Jesus is true? I mean, let's be honest. It seems far-fetched, doesn't it? That God is a trinity, if we can even understand that to begin with. He's one God who exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that God the Son sent Sorry, God the Father sent his son into the world, born of a virgin, 
to live a perfect, sinless life, that he performed miracles, and he died in our place and rose again and then ascended into heaven and they sent his Holy Spirit, that we have God living in us, empowering us to live differently, and that one day Jesus is going to come back and reign forever and judge sin. It seems like a fairy tale, like a fantasy. It seems like a myth. Now listen, Almost no one denies that there was a man named Jesus who taught people in Israel and was crucified by the Romans, right? Only the most crazy skeptics will even bother to deny those basic truths. There was a man whose name was Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and was crucified by the Romans. That's accepted history. But the question is, is the New Testament account of what happened around that and who Jesus was, is it a legitimate, historical, trustworthy account? There are lots of myths from the ancient world that we don't believe anymore. Why do we believe this one? The answer is because this is not a myth. I know that's easy to say, but that's also what Peter's saying here in verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories. That word is myths in Greek. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. And he says this, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now you're right, there are lots of myths in the ancient world. But let me tell you this, not one of them claims that they had eyewitness accounts involved in them. You know, today we have a a genre in writing called fiction. That's a modern genre, right, where An author writes a story that is not true and tries to pass it off as much as possible as truth. They might even talk about eyewitness accounts. They might even talk about the historical events going on around it. They want to make it seem as clear as possible, as true as possible, even though we know that it's fiction, right? That genre did not exist when the New Testament was written. People wrote myths that were fanciful stories, fantastic stories about the gods and all the adventurers out there. No one cared if they were true or not. They taught a principle about life. That was the important part. Whether the Odysseus, the the Odyssey and the Iliad, those stories are true or not, was not the point. They taught us about principles of life and how the gods worked and those kind of things. This is not written as a myth. It's written as history, which is also a genre they had. So unless the authors of the New Testament were way ahead of their time and invented the modern genre of fiction 2,000 years ago, this is meant to be read as history. Okay, but is that history, is that changed or exaggerated, right? That certainly happened a lot in the ancient world. Certain parts of history would be adjusted or downplayed to make a certain king or nation look better than they actually were. Did that happen with the, the New Testament? Did that happen with the Gospels? Well, there's a question that we need to ask about that. If they changed history... Who benefited from it? Not Peter. Right? Go back and read the Gospels and pay attention to how much of a bonehead Peter is all the way through. Right? Peter was the leader of the apostles. He's the one who would have had clout and authority. Right? If he's going to change his history, he surely would have left out that part about him being a coward and denying Jesus three times. Right? He didn't become rich and influential after either. He spent his life in danger, arrested, threatened, beaten, and eventually killed for it. Who's gaining from this? There's no evidence that this history has been changed by the original writers. Well, okay, but this was written 2,000 years ago. Maybe 
you know, hundreds of years later, the church leaders who were getting rich and powerful, that did happen in history. Maybe they changed the, his, the history so that they could become rich and powerful. That's sort of the Da Vinci Code, if you've ever read that book or watched that movie. That's the, the conspiracy theory there. Sure, that could have happened, but it didn't. You know, everything that we know of ancient history comes from archaeology digging up artifacts, ancient ruins, or written documents that have been preserved. Those ancient documents are really important because they give us more than just dates and names like some of the other things do. They give us history. They give us information. If we're really lucky, we have a couple copies of those documents so we can say, yeah, look, there's two copies of this. It helps to verify it. And those documents are usually from a long time after the actual events. It's not great for being really, really sure and accurate, but it's the best that we have when it comes to ancient history. But the evidence for the New Testament, on the other hand, is overwhelming. We have so many ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that nothing else even comes close. There are over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, not full manuscripts. There are different sizes and lengths. There are full ones. The smallest one is literally two inches by three inches. It's a, a scrap of the Gospel of John. So 5,000 parts or, or full manuscripts of different parts of the Bible. But we can compare these manuscripts. They come from all over the Mediterranean, North, North Africa, Europe, the Middle East. We can look at them. We can compare them. They're from different periods over that 2,000 years, or I guess 1,500 years before the printing press. After the printing press, things get a lot easier to kind of keep the same, right? But these ancient manuscripts, we can look at them, how they've changed over time, have they changed over time, and the evidence points to, no, they have not. That what we have in the New Testament is what was originally written by the, the authors of the New Testament, give or take about maybe 2% of a couple discrepancies that we have. There's nothing else like the New Testament in terms of ancient history and the reliableness of it. So the message wasn't changed over time. The message wasn't a lie. The message was written, in, written as history. And so when the Apostle Peter says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, we have good reason to believe him. But we need to understand exactly what Peter is saying here. He's not just speaking in general about his teaching that Jesus came. He's speaking specifically about the fact that Jesus is going to come again. He's going to return one day. When he says, we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, that phrase, the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, the Greek behind it is, is technical language that always refers to, to Jesus' second coming. Not his first coming as a baby, humbly in the manger, but his coming in power a second time to judge sin and reign forever. So Peter's saying, we aren't making up that part about him coming again because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, he hasn't come again, so he's not, there, he's not saying we've seen that already. So what is he saying? Peter in here, he goes on to talk about a particular moment in Jesus' ministry that's called the transfiguration. Transfiguration is a big word that means to be transformed, specifically into something that's beautiful or elevated, something great and wonderful. You see, Jesus was a human. Peter knew him as a human. He had nothing special about his appearance, we're told. But one day he brought Peter and two other of the apostles, John and James, up a mountain. 
and something amazing happened. Matthew chapter 17 talks about this in verse 2. Actually, all the Gospels talk about this. Listen to what Matthew 17 verse 2 says. There he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Or in the way that, the way that Peter says it in 2 Peter 1.16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For a moment, that veil of his humanity was lifted. And these three men saw Jesus for who he really was. Not just a construction worker from a podunk town in Israel. Not even just a wise teacher, but the majestic and glorious God who had become a human. They were not only eyewitnesses, but they were also earwitnesses. Listen to verse 17. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. They see Jesus transformed, transfigured. They hear God the Father speaking in that moment about his identity, that he is not just a man, that he is God's Son, the one God loves. that, That must have been an incredible experience. And if you read the story, you can see Peter not knowing what to say and kind of shooting off his mouth as he often does, trying to figure out what to do. But what does it have to do with Jesus coming again in power? Well, Peter's saying, we know Jesus wasn't just a normal man who lived and died. Not even just a normal man who lived and died and rose again. We saw a glimpse of who he really is. We heard a confirmation from God the Father himself of his identity. When he returns, it won't be the way he came the first time. It will be in power and with glory. You can trust us. We saw that power and that glory. We heard about it. But Peter goes even further than that. He says not only can we trust the New Testament, but our third point is we can trust the Old Testament. You know, one thing I don't have time to do today is to show you how that statement that God made, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, that statement is stuffed with Old Testament references to the one God would send to rescue his people and reign as king forever, the one who would come to judge sin. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Jewish people were looking for a Messiah to come and do just that. Right? They didn't expect him to die. They expected him to reign and judge and set up his kingdom forever. Those promises are all throughout the Old Testament. And God the Father told Peter, John, and James that Jesus was the fulfillment of those promises. And that's why Peter goes on to say in verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Now, the English Standard Version uh, has a slightly more literal translation here. Verse 19, it says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That is to say, the Old Testament prophecies, the promises given to us by God are shown to be reliable. We knew they were reliable because they were God's word, but now we have extra confirmation. They're more more fully confirmed because of Jesus. And Jesus shows us that we can trust the Old Testament. Now, is that true? Maybe Peter's saying that Jesus shows us that just the parts about him are reliable. But what, what about the rest of the Old Testament? Well, friends, I have news for you. There isn't anything else. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus in one way or another. It's not just a few prophecies about Jesus and the rest is about something else. The Old Testament history, 
from start to finish is about how we have sinned and need, forgiven, need to be forgiven and how God worked to prepare the way for his ultimate rescue plan, that is sending Jesus. Right? At Christmas, we looked at the main points in that story in the Old Testament as God made covenant promises with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and then that new covenant. So the main signposts along the way pointed to Jesus. But the entire Old Testament hints at his coming and foreshadows his story. Jesus is the main character of the Bible from start to finish. It's not always easy to see how, but that is true. And that's why Peter continues in verse 19 and says this. He's talking about the Old Testament uh, message. He says, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says, you, you and I need to pay attention to the Old Testament message. We need to read it and study it to know how it points us to Jesus. That takes work and time. Hopefully you're helped by that in the way that we preach from the Old Testament here. Because all of God's word, including the Old Testament, we're told is a light shining in a dark place. It's a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We live in a world where right and wrong and truth and falsehood are all mixed up because of sin. We're affected by that. We're sinners. We forget and we don't care at times. We need to hold on to God's word and let it shine into our hearts and show us the truth of these things, of who Jesus is, of what he's done for us, and of how we should live until he returns. That's the day that dawns, the day that he comes back. The morning star refers to the, the, the planet Venus, which just before dawn you can see on the horizon, right? He's using that metaphorically to talk about Jesus. He said Jesus is going to come back and show you these things in a more full way. Now we see through a mirror darkly, but then we'll see him face to face, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. Listen, the Bible is reliable, both, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's reliable not just because it's a verified eyewitness historical account, although that is true, and I don't think enough people realize that. But the Bible is mostly reliable because it's from God. You know, there's a popular theory about the Bible that even some Christians believe. The Bible is an account of humans experiencing God and then trying to the best of their ability to record kind of what happens. So we look at the Bible to find out the truth about God, but there's, there's sort of some stuff we've got to wade through and get rid of because it's obviously not true. They were, they were primitive back then and we know better today. There are lots of people who believe that, lots of Christians. But that is not how the Bible presents itself. Look at, look at what Peter says about the Old Testament prophets in verse 20. He says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, these things that are written in the Bible... Even the most ancient and old things, even the things that are so hard for us to, to hold on to today, things that our culture tells us are wrong, these did not come about by prophets interpreting what they saw. There isn't any human bias in the Bible that waters down or dilutes or, or messes up God's word. This does not have its origin in the human will. Yes, the prophets and the apostles were humans. They were sinful. They were fallible. They had cultural biases. 
And God used their backgrounds and their vocabulary and their writing styles to accomplish what he wanted to say in here. But when they wrote about God, the things that God told them to write, that wanted them to write, it wasn't their words. It was God's word. The human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we're, called, we're told. That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scripture, that word writing means the Bible, all scripture is God-breathed. Right? It's not a human book. It's God's word. He spoke it through humans, through the apostles and the prophets who wrote it down. But what they wrote down wasn't their own interpretation of things. It wasn't from them. It was from God. It's a mystery of how that happens, but that's what the Bible says about itself. In the Bible, we learn who Jesus is. We learn what he did for us. We learn how we should live until he returns. That's the value and the need and the purpose of the Bible. So let me ask you, do you trust the Bible? Do you know why you need it? Do you love it? Brothers and sisters, ask the Holy Spirit to give you a deep desire to know Jesus through his word. It won't come just by your own strength. Ask him for help. And then get reading. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that you have given us your word. That there are things in here that are hard to understand. There are things in here that are hard for us to understand. There are things in here that are hard to believe. But we know this is from you. It's your word. You are a God who is impossible for you to lie. So everything that is written in your word is true. We can trust it and hold on to it. Help us to know how to do that. Help us to have a desire in our hearts for that. Help us to love your word and see our need for it. And discipline ourselves to spend time with you every day in it. To build that up in our lives. When we struggle and we don't do well, forgive us and help us to do better the next day. We need your word. We need to hold on to Jesus. And we can't without your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you're going to come back one day. Help us to hold on until that day. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.